scripture reading is also this morning from Psalm 51. We've sung portions of this very psalm. We, we hope still to sing um, the last portion of this psalm in our following Psalter. But we'll be reading Psalm 51 this morning. To the chief musician, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet came unto him, after he had gone into Bathsheba. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according unto the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgression, and my sin is ever before me. Against thee, Thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest and be clear when thou judgest. Behold, I was shapen in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, thou desirest truth in the inward parts and in the hidden part thou shalt make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness, that the bones which thou hast broken may rejoice. Hide thy face from my sins, and blot out all mine iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from thy presence, and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation, and uphold me with thy free spirit. Then will I teach transgressors thy ways, and sinners shall be converted unto thee. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, thou God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of thy righteousness. O Lord, open thou my lips, and my mouth shall show forth thy praise. For thou desirest not sacrifice, else would I give it. Thou delightest not in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. Do good in thy good pleasure unto Zion. Build thou the walls of Jerusalem. Then shalt thou be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness, with burnt offering and whole burnt offering. Then shall they offer bullocks upon thine altar. Amen. Thus far in the reading of God's holy word. Dear congregation, we we return our attention now to Psalm 51. I'll be reading two main verses that we will be focusing upon. And then I'll also be reading um, in the back of our Psalters on page 62, Lord's Day 30. Now we we are preparing our hearts as next Lord's Day in the morning we hope to partake of the Lord's Supper. And we usually on this Sunday read the first part of the form. Well, since... Since today we will be reading, this morning we will be reading Lord's Day 30, and the sermon will will also be connected to the catechism. 
this this afternoon I'll be reading the first portion of the form. Um, if, if you're not coming this afternoon, we encourage you to read that, that first portion of the form. Next Lord's Day, we, we read the second portion and partake of the Lord's Supper. But in page 62, it's Lord's Day 30. I said I was going to return to this Lord's Day because it's all regarding the Lord's Supper. And the passages from Psalm 51 is verse 7, are verse 7 and verse 9. So 51 Psalms, 51 verse 7. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. And verse 9. Hide thy face from my sins, and blot out all mine iniquities. Amen. And let me read now in page 69, Lord's Day 30. Question 80. What difference is there between the Lord's Supper and the Popish Mass? The Lord's Supper testifies to us that we have a full pardon of all sin by the only sacrifice of Jesus Christ, which He Himself has once accomplished on the cross and that we by the Holy Ghost are engrafted into Christ, who according to His human nature is now not on earth, but in heaven, at the right hand of God, His Father, and will there be worshipped by us. But the Mass teaches that the living and the dead have not the pardon of sins through the sufferings of Christ, unless Christ is also daily offered for them by the priests, and further, that Christ is bodily under the form of bread and wine, and therefore is to be worshipped in them, so that the Mass at bottom is nothing else than a denial of the one sacrifice and sufferings of Jesus Christ and an accursed idolatry. Question 81. For whom is the Lord's Supper instituted? For those who are truly sorrowful for their sins and yet trust that these are forgiven them for the sake of Christ. This is so much what we see in this psalm. A man who is sorrowful, asking for forgiveness, and who trusts that there is forgiveness with God. And that their remaining infirmities are covered by His passion and death, His suffering and death, and who also earnestly desire to have their faith more and more strengthened and their lives more holy but hypocrites and such as turn not to God with sincere hearts eat and drink judgment to themselves. In question 82, are they also to be admitted to the supper who by confession and life declare themselves unbelieving and ungodly? No, for by this the covenant of God would be profaned and his wrath kindled against the whole congregation. Therefore, it is the duty of the Christian church, according to the appointment of Christ and his apostles, to exclude such persons by the keys of the kingdom of heaven till they show amendment of life. And this is concerning someone who may have professed his faith, but then is not living it, that they ought not to partake until they are reconciled to the Lord. But the focus we will have is what we read in the answer. The Lord's Supper testifies to us that we have full pardon of all sin by the one sacrifice of Christ. This, this is what David 
had in his heart. He, he does not repeat, in essence, um, seven times where he pleads for forgiveness because he wonders if it can come. He pleads seven times because of how much he acknowledges that he needs it. He is certain that it will come. He's not so certain that he's broken enough. In terms of our coming before the Lord to ask forgiveness, that's always the problem. Never that God is maybe not gracious enough to pardon. The problem is always that maybe we're not broken enough to acknowledge that we need it. And by repeating, he is making it clear. I mean it, Lord. I need it. I will die without your forgiveness. Now, we we come to this psalm because in it we find many figures of forgiveness. And you may remember that as we, as we have been preparing our hearts for every next Lord's Supper, from time to time we have considered the figures of forgiveness. We have seen that God's Word has so many. It is not just one. It is not just two. We have seen so far five of them. We have seen the asking of forgiveness as the canceling of a debt as washing dirt away, as erasing a criminal record, as asking God not to remember sin any longer. And the fifth one that we saw was that that classical definition of of forgiveness where sin is carried away, the carrying away of sin. And with that figure, there were so many other that are part of that, the the casting sin into the depths of the sea, the casting sin behind God's back. we, We find men pleading and women pleading that God would do that, that God would cast sin behind His back, putting sin away, throwing it away, removing sin as far as the the east is from the west. Those are all figures of sin being carried away. And and the person, the repentant, the, the penitent person saying, I want sin nowhere around. And now we come to this figure of forgiveness. Well, actually two. In our first point, we, we will look at two figures of forgiveness that this psalm has. We will look at the figure of purging with hyssop and of God's hiding His face from our sin. We will look at these together um, because they they appear really close to each other in verse 7 as we read in verse 9. Um, And then we hope to see how this psalm speaks strongly about the experience of forgiveness. This, in essence, is when your heart and mine has that blessed result of forgiveness, the feeling that you have been forgiven. That, That is ultimately, isn't it, what we are so much after. We ask forgiveness because we want to feel forgiven. And then thirdly, we will look at the need of repentance. From time to time, we have touched on repentance in these messages of forgiveness. And this psalm has much to teach us about repentance. And and it is always important to realize forgiveness is not just something that comes. We do have to repent we do have to confess our sins. It, it, it is part of how God works to then bless 
you with forgiveness. So first of all, the figures of forgiveness. And, and I won't be going through all the others that, that are here that some of them we have looked at. But just to show a little, a little design of this psalm, there, there are, we could say, four places where David is focusing on asking for forgiveness. There are little clusters, you could say, where he is asking. You notice that he, he uses one figure and immediately brings one. He says, have, have mercy upon me, he starts the psalm. But in that same verse, he says, blot out my transgressions. He, he said, this is how I want thee, O Lord, to have mercy on me. Blot out my transgressions. Look at verse 2. Wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. This is what I mean about little package. He is, he is from one phrase to the next. As soon as he takes a breath, he is asking for forgiveness again. So we, we find these four um, groups, but in all of these four groups, if you were to count how many times he's asking for forgiveness, there are at least seven times. It's the number of completion. Um, the first time is have mercy upon me and then blot out my transgressions, number two. And then wash me thoroughly, number two. Cleanse me from my sin, number four. And then um, purge me with hyssop, number five. Clean and wash me. And then number seven, um, hide thy face from my sins. Just one after another. But let's look at the figures that we have not yet seen, beginning with purge me. We will look, as I said, at purge me and hide thy face from my sins. Those are two figures of forgiveness. Let's start with purging. And the purging element, is, 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 it doesn't exist by itself. He doesn't say purge me from my sins. He says purge me with hyssop. The figure is that full phrase. The purging has to do with the applying of hyssop. Now, when we talk about this figure, there's a ceremonial element to this figure of forgiveness. And this figure connects with the figure of pleading that God would wash in one way. This is how these two work together. They are the two figures... That even though they have an element of symbol, an element of imagery, they have an element that was physical, an element that was tangible. And they are the two that even come to us today where there's an element of tangibility. And and this is what I mean. Um, in terms of the ceremonies, there were washings. There were moments where you get a bowl and you would literally wash it thoroughly. And there would be people who would come and they would say, I have touched a dead body. I am unclean. And there would be a washing upon that person. There, Remember the whole element of dealing with leprosy if it were on a home, if it was an object, if it was on a person. When there would be an element of you are healed now, there would be a washing. And so when we say, Lord, wash me so that I would be clean, we we need to understand that us in Christianity live a reality that was physical, that is physical, because there is the washing of baptism where we put literal water into that bowl and that water pours upon us and we are experiencing something of that washing. 
That's what's so powerful about baptism. It's not that washing that does it, but it's communicating that from the cross there is a power to cleanse you that does it. And purging with hyssop also has this physical reality to it because it comes from the moment where there were certain things that would be purged with hyssop. Boys and girls, remember when they were in Egypt, and that's the first time that it comes to our mind where hyssop would be just like a bunch of little herbs put together, little leaves with little thin um, branches, and they would tie that with a scarlet thread. Even the scarlet thread was already emblematic of, of blood. And then that lamb that they had to kill and then put the blood on the doorposts was purged with hyssop. The hyssop became almost as it were like a little paintbrush. And, and you could either paint that blood on the doorpost or sprinkle it. And, and that's what it meant to purge with hyssop. And then there were other items that, that received that ritual. Um, like I said, when there was the element of somebody touching a dead body or connected to, to, to leprosy, there would, there would be the sprinkling with blood, sometimes sprinkling with water. Blood and water were connected with purging with hyssop. Let, let me read Hebrews 9.19. This is when Moses, it wasn't the sprinkling of the doorpost, it was even the sprinkling of the people. That, that was one moment where after a sacrifice, it was sprinkled upon the altar and then he sprinkled the people. Hebrews 9.19, For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and of goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book and all the people. And almost all things are by the law purged with blood. And without shedding of blood is no remission. And, and that was a way of communicating, okay, the animal was sacrificed, so, God has forgiven your sin, and we want so much to communicate that your sin is forgiven, that there will be an element of sprinkling even that blood to you. It was like connecting the reality of the sacrifice to your existence, to, to God's people's existence, so that they would walk out of there with, with a memorial upon them, communicating to them, of course, that the forgiveness that was promised is true. And I have a token upon me to remember it, to not forget. Numbers 19.18, it says, And a clean person shall take hyssop and dip it in water and sprinkle upon the tent and upon the vessels and upon the persons that were there and upon him that touched a bone or one slain or one dead or a grave. So if we were contaminated in any ceremonial way, we would then receive the purging with hyssop. Now, remember the, the blessed thing I mentioned. This figure is it's not the only one different from all the others, but along with washing, and you understand now why with washing, it has this blessedness. It's a figure, but it's also a fact. There's an element that's, that's more in terms of an image, but there was an element that was actually experienced upon the body. So that was a confirming element of forgiveness. And, and this is probably why he says, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. 
See, there's this certainty. Lord, if, if you really will get the hyssop and put it upon the blood of the sacrifice and sprinkle it upon me. And you see, he's speaking here spiritually. He's speaking here in terms of an image. But he's thinking of a physical hyssop that he sees every time he goes to the temple. And he's saying, Lord, if you will do this to me in your spiritual way, I will be clean. He's almost envisioning that he would have the little droplets of the sacrifice of the blood upon himself. Now, let me go to hide thy face. And after I bring these two figures before us so that we have in our minds these these illustrations, these figures, we're going to find out how this can be done truly, like theologically. So the hide thy face. He says in verse 9, hide thy face from my sins. You, you would think at first glance, why, why does he even ask this? If he, if he asks to be washed, there's no more sins to look upon. If he's asking the idea of sin being carried away, what, what is there to look upon? But you see, it's, it's like the heart of the penitent is looking at every way possible to... Make sure that in God's heart and in God's mind, there is no concept and no thought of our sins. So if our sins were carried away and they're somewhere that God knows, don't look at it there. And if our sin is still upon me because maybe I haven't repented enough and it's still in my record, Lord, don't look upon me here. Wherever sin is, Lord, hide thy face from my sin. This is like the penitent just pleading with every kind of recourse that he has. And, and think of this. This is David. His sin was not hidden. He committed adultery with Bathsheba, and then he contrived with, with Joab so that the husband of Bathsheba at the front line of battle would die by going to the front line of battle. So there was his letter to look upon. There was his conversations with Joab to look upon. Uh, his sins were even in the hearts of, of Joab, in the memory and the record all there, and, and, of, and of Bathsheba and the baby that she bore. See, there was a lot to look upon. And David is basically saying, Lord, don't look upon that note that I wrote. Don't look upon what Joab is thinking about me. Don't look upon my baby. Don't look about Bathsheba. I have defiled her. Lord, don't look upon my adultery. Don't look upon my lies. Don't look upon the hatred that I had, the bloodthirstiness that I had. Lord, don't look upon any of this record that is so wretched. Please forgive me. So now the question is, how? How can a just God not look upon such evil? Because see, if he doesn't look, where is his justice? That is what God has been accused of. If you forgive this wicked David, then where is your justice, O God? And so we need to answer this question. How can God be merciful to David and to you And how can he remain just? Well, we know the answer. Let's let's 
look at the answer, looking at purging again, and looking at the concept of asking God to hide His face. I want us to turn, if you would like to turn with me, to to a well-known passage, um, but actually to a few verses above it. Isaiah 52. And you'll remember this, maybe, that... Remember always this, Isaiah 53, as... as, um, as well-known as it is, as the passage of the suffering Savior, you'll know that it starts in, cha- in verse 13. Chapter 20, 52, verse 13, is where this whole section begins. Look at verse 13. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and very high. As many were astonished at thee, His visage was so marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. Why was it marred? It was marred because of blood. It was marred because of bruises. Where they had put the crown, blood poured all through his visage. Where, had they, where they had buffeted him with their slaps and punched him with their fists. It had bruised and there were wounds. His visage was, was brown and blue and purple and full of crimson red from the flowing f- fresh blood. And then look at verse 15. So shall he sprinkle many nations. So shall he sprinkle That's what the hyssop did. See, that blood that was upon Jesus that marred his visage was a blood that was sprinkled upon many nations. The kings shall shut their mouths at him for that which had not been told them shall they see and that which they had not heard shall they consider. And then comes um, all of Isaiah 53 so that what we have to focus upon here is the reality of the shed blood of Christ that starts from his visage and then we know that he had those wounds and that he had the bruises, that he was chastised and that relates to the scourges that he received And from each one of these, to one degree or another, the blood was there already being poured forth, or it was right there on the skin where where it just needed to be torn a little, and the blood would gush out. And then the Lord Jesus goes to the cross, and they nail him to the tree so that blood blood flows out of those pores as well. And, And of course, I could start with Gethsemane, where the Lord Jesus there began to also shed blood, even when he was praying and wrestled with the Lord regarding the cup that he would have to drink. So, beloved, see, when you think of purging with hyssop, you have to think of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ that flowed so powerfully, so greatly, so abundantly. See, we offer to Him our sins, and He offers to us His blood. We load our evil sins upon Him, and He sprinkles us with His holy blood. And in sprinkling us, He is saying, I died, and you're forgiven. I can be merciful to you because I am just upon my son. That's 
That's why we can say, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Because of the blood that flowed from Emmanuel's body, from the pores, from the pricks, from the nails, from the scourgings, and then even from the pierced side. And here, beloved, we can speak in terms of the water that poured forth out of Christ. He purges you with hyssop, not just with blood, but also with water. I found a verse that is, that is very emphatic. If, if you want to see it and mark it, Psalm 22, we read the Lord Jesus in verse 14 saying, I am poured out like water. The totality of the suffering of Christ is seen as as water being poured forth out. And and so rightly, because as He pours forth as water, that water is then applied by faith to the sinner. And your sins are washed away like a torrent from this powerful water that flows from the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. And not only that, we know that when He was pierced on His side, out forth came water and blood so that there is this duality of the sprinkling with hyssop of water or blood whatever it may be whatever kind of sin you have you come to the Lord Jesus Christ and and confess your sins and He will purge you with hyssop and you will be clean that's how but let's look at the figure of asking God hide thy face from my sins how can a just God just hide His face from your sins? In, 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 in a face value, it almost sounds like, okay, sin will continue. Just hide your face. And, and anyone could also look at that and say, where, where is the justice there? Now, now, really, this God is a God who just winks at sin, closes His eyes at sin, and allows it to go on in the heart of, of who He calls His own. No. We know it's, it's a figure. It's, of course, not meaning that He hides His face and sin continues in our hearts and we continue living it out. It's not that. But how can we ask Him to hide His face from our sins? Well, only because He did not hide His face from His Son. And He saw all our sins on him there they were all to be seen all to be punished all to be atoned for our sins on Jesus is the only thing that explains why he was betrayed it was our sins on Jesus why he was arrested it was our sins on Jesus why he was scourged and he was beaten. It was our sins on Jesus. And see, God was seeing our sins on Jesus. And so he says, I see sin on you, my son. You must suffer. You must die. Because, see, the gaze of the Father was upon our sins, not on us, but on Jesus. 
So when we say, hide thy face from me, the only way he can do this in mercy to you and in justice because he's just is by gazing upon his son and seeing the right handwriting of our sins all there upon him, not just on the cross, but upon the cursed one who hung on the cross and God's sight was there vehemently upon him. He didn't wink at sin. He saw our sins upon His Son. But this doesn't say everything. Because when the total amount of Calvary, when, when like the fullness of atonement was at its very climax, you could say, God's face had to turn away from the Son. So for you to ask, hide your face from me, Lord. The sins were so many and so grotesque and the reality of sin upon the Son such that the Father had to hide His face even from His Son. For us to plead, hide your face, He needs to look at the Son and not hide. But He also has to no longer look at the Son so that the Son would cry, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The answer, because there are so many sins upon you. I cannot even look upon you as my Son any longer. My wrath must be poured. And you have to understand, see, because there are sinners pleading that I would forgive them. Pleading that I would hide my face from them, so I must now hide my face from thee. See, we understand this to be all in this in the spiritual precious way. It would be as the Father saying, my son, I love you. I, it's like I never loved you more because you're so obedient and you're the sacrifice. You're fulfilling the promise that you said you would fulfill. And yet my wrath must be upon you for the very reason that the sin of the multitude of all my people are upon you right now and I must not look at you. And that's how I don't look at theirs. You see how precious these figures of forgiveness, beloved. And because they're precious and because they're true, we we have our second point, the experience of forgiveness. Beloved, when, when I arrive here, this is, isn't it, where all of us meet. This is where all of us meet. This is the longing of the heart of man and women everywhere throughout this world. Oh Lord, would thou take this guilt away, this darkness. Some people know not what it's called. They don't understand what it's be, what, what, why it's there. But it's the longing of the heart to be clean, to be purged, to be cleansed. Is it possible? There are people just in despair because that's what they want. But They don't understand it's what they want. They don't know how it's to be had. Beloved, this is where all of humanity meets and that our pleas are all the same. Listen to the plea of this heart. In verse 10, we we find it. Let us go back there to Psalm, Psalm 51. In verse 10, he says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, 
renew a right spirit within me. You know, he's, he's asking, Lord, can I feel forgiven? Can, can I experience forgiveness? Please, create in me a clean heart. Renew a right spirit within me. And then he says, cast me not away from thy presence. He's saying, I feel like I'm far away. Don't, don't, don't cast me far away. Take not thy Holy Spirit from me. I feel like I am spiritless. Please don't take him away from me. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. I, I don't feel like I'm saved. I don't feel like I'm joyful in my salvation. Please restore it and uphold me with thy free spirit. In essence, this, this describes what guilt is. To, to feel guilty is to feel like you have a dirty heart. It is to feel like your spirit is old, so you would ask God to renew it. Or that it's hurt. You, you feel cast away from God's presence. You feel like the Holy Spirit has left you. You feel gloom and not joy. You feel fallen, unsustained, um, upheld, because He asks, Sustain me, Lord, uphold me. So it's someone feeling fallen. That's... This is like, like an anatomy of guilt. Isn't this how you feel when you sin? And then think of how great it feels when God answers all of these requests. And this is, in many ways, beloved, where we all hope to meet, where we all want to be together, is as a body of forgiven Sinners, where we experience this blessed joy, where our hearts feel clean, where our souls feel right, where we feel Christ is near, where we know the Spirit is present, where we feel joy and gladness, and where we are upheld and sustained. That's the experience of forgiveness. But he, he doesn't just plead for it. He expects it. See, by faith, he knows it can be had. Look at verse 13. He says, Then will I teach transgressors thy ways, and sinners shall be converted unto thee. If you stop to put, put this in the context, it is, it is mind-boggling. This is a man who is even connected to murder, and yet he believes God will be merciful to use him as a preacher that he may still teach transgressors thy ways and sinners be converted unto thee. An evangelist, a teacher, a Sunday school teacher, he expects it. Look at verse 14. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O, o God, thou God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of thy righteousness. It's a confession of faith. I know, I know I will sing again. Verse 15, O Lord, open thou my lips, and my mouth shall show forth thy praise. It will happen, Lord, if thou will do it. Help me to experience, help me to have forgiveness, help me to experience forgiveness, and I know I will. I know I will. And the last element of this second point, not only does he plead for feeling forgiven, you notice what I'm doing here, what the psalm is doing. He's not just asking for forgiveness. He's also asking to feel forgiven. And then he knows he will get it. And then you could ask, did he? Did he receive it? Now, I believe this psalm is a testimony that the answer is yes. You have this psalm because David 
felt forgiveness. And with this psalm, what is he doing? He is teaching us transgressors God's ways. He is teaching us sinners to be converted unto God. He said he would do that. If he felt forgiveness, he would then be a teacher. And this psalm is your teacher. And we are being taught. He felt forgiven. And then thirdly, the fact of repentance. I want to end here because it's important that we at least understand this reality. It's, it's not like we, we sit under the gaze of God's grace and we just ask for forgiveness and He gives it and we know we'll experience it. There's, there's the profound grace of repentance and it is all through this psalm. Just as I can present this psalm to you as a proof that he felt forgiven, it is also a proof to you that this was a repentant man. Put this into context as well. This is David, and he is not just before his kingdom confessing his sin and saying, here's a psalm to be sung in worship so that he understood that throughout all of the generations forward, people would sing of the follies of David, his sin, his evil, but also his brokenness and his repentance. Beloved, we have been singing this psalm for 3,000 years. David didn't shy away from repenting it's a confession. Remember, we, if we count the times he asks for forgiveness, it seems like there's seven times. I, th- I say it seems because it's, it's hard to know. Sometimes there's just a comma and he repeats and you wonder, is this kind of together or is it like another time he's asking? But I, I believe I counted seven. But in the same thing, when I was counting the repentances, when I was counting this man saying things like in verse 3, um, I acknowledge my transgressions. See, that's, that's a mark of repentance. And then, number 2, my sin is ever before me, verse 3. So if you, if you count all of those phrases where he is pleading, look at verse 4, against thee, thee only, have I sinned and done this evil. And then look at verse 5, behold, I was shapen in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. And then um, verse uh, 6, behold, thou desirest truth in the inward parts. And then in verses 16 and 17, you count all those together, it's seven times. Look at verse 16. For thou desirest not sacrifice, else would I give it. Thou desirest not, um, delightest not in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken and a contrite heart. Those are key words for repentance. He's saying, I know, Lord, that you desire repentance. And here I offer that to you. I was shapen in iniquity. It's, It's not other people's fault. He's not playing the blame game. He's saying, I was born. I was born already with sin. He's not also just blaming creation and saying, I was born this way. He's saying, I already had sin there. I was already guilty in my mother's womb. I came forth and I kept on sinning. I acknowledge, Lord, I am a sinner. You count there seven times. 
Seven times he asked for forgiveness, which is already elements of repentance. And then seven times very exclusively asking, um, showing his confession. Now, doesn't it strike you as amazing? Like, absolutely astonishing. All of the blessings we saw, this is a conclusion, to be washed, to be cleansed, to have sin blotted out, erased, purged by hyssop, to have God's very sight diverted where he sees the record of your sin no longer. You you think of all the fruit that that brings, those feelings of forgiveness, to, to have a clean heart, a renewed spirit within you, the presence of God, the spirit of God, joy, salvation, upheld by God's spirit. How can you have all of this? How can that be yours? This passage says nothing of gold and silver. It has absolutely nothing about your merits and your obedience bringing that to you. No. We answered, it is Christ. And what's your part? And we could summarize it, it is dust and ashes. That's our contribution. To acknowledge our need. To, to yearn for it as, as if for life. To confess our sins. That's just telling God, yes, I am a sinner. To own it, to acknowledge it. To stop lying. To not blame others. And just say, Lord, I'm a sinner. You see, there are no works there. There are no merits it's, it's dust and ashes. And what does God give? He gives His Son. He gives cleansing. And like we, like we read in the form, we have full pardon of all sin by the only sacrifice of Jesus Christ. How? Which He Himself has once accomplished on the cross. And that one Lord's Day wants to make very clear, when we come together next Lord's Day, Lord willing, with bread and wine, it's not those elements that will do it. See, those elements will be to us a lot like hyssop was to them. Some of us will will touch and eat. It will become physical because God wants to communicate to us, I mean it. I really forgive you. I really cleanse you. And may ours be the heart like David's. Lord, I acknowledge my transgression and my sin is ever before me. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Hide thy face from my sin and blot out all my iniquities. Amen. Let us pray. Our gracious, glorious God Almighty, we thank Thee, Lord, not only for the figures of forgiveness that make it abundantly clear how Thou art a God so willing to forgive, so willing that we would understand that Thou art willing to forgive, but also, Lord, for the eternal reality that Thou art a God who forgives. 
a God who cleanses and who washes and who purges and who forgets voluntarily, who hides thy face from our sins, who carries them away. Lord, may we be like penitent David. Lord, we plead for the grace of repentance. May ours be hearts that truly acknowledge our sins, our wickedness, our iniquities, and that we would come before Thee, Lord, honestly, sincerely, and that we may come forth, Lord, with these blessed truths. We pray, Lord, open Thou our lips, that our mouth may show forth Thy praise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.